This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. He wants to be the Premier of Victoria, has a pitch to regional voters and we're going to put it to the test today on the program. Opposition leader Matthew Guy in studio. It's a pre-recorded interview so I can't put your questions directly to Matthew Guy but I would love your commentary on it. You can send us a text as we play the interview 0467 842 722 today. You can call as well 1300 two. Also on the program though, the talk of preparations and floods has been a constant on this program for some time. Well, it's still a very real and a very happening reality for many people along the Murray. We will go to some of those areas, Robinvale, Caligonan, on the program today to hear about those preparations, how people are getting ready for floodwaters to arrive, what it looks like now, and also what it was like in the past. Does that tell you anything about what is to come? All of that and more today on the program. Let's begin, though, with some rural news and Jane McNaughton today. Jane. Thanks, Was. A vital link in Australia's food supply chain is too easily exposed to difficult seasonal conditions without a formal support system. Australia's Livestock and Rural Transporters Association wants to create a type of self-insurance scheme to deal with difficult years. Executive Director Matthew Munro says the scheme would be vital for truckies that are particularly dependent on seasonal conditions. Our concept is based on the farm management deposit schemes that are already in place. Uh, They've been there and working for many years. And they are, in effect, a a multi-peril insurance scheme, so a self-insurance scheme, I should say. So a a participant uh, in a good year may have surplus income and they are able to make deposits into a farm management deposit scheme in that year, uh, which would be then tax deductible uh, in the year that it's deposited, Uh, but it could be withdrawn later and taxed at that point. And so a later point could be a year in which... The business was struggling uh, and needed that money. A well-known apple is getting a new name in international markets. The Bravo apple, known for its dark red skin and white flesh, is being rebranded to expand its opportunities in new export markets. Overseas, it's now going to be known as the Saluna apple. Sean Eaglebrecht is the National Development Manager for Bravo and says the name change was needed due to trademark issues and the meaning behind the new name is a perfect fit. The key reason for the rebrand was not to have any limitations in in terms of market access from the trademark perspective. The previous trademark, Bravo, did not have access into all the markets that we wanted to target. And so the thinking was to do a relaunch on the international brand and to use a brand that'll that'll enable us to access markets that currently we don't have access to. Not from a biosecurity point of view, but from a trademark point of view. Saluna was chosen, which really refers to the sun and the moon and to embody the really dark burgundy skin contrasted against the crisp white flesh of the apple. A new October shipping record has been set in Western Australia. The state's main grain handler, CBH Group, exported 1.18 million tonnes last month, setting a new monthly shipping record, breaking the previous record set in 2012 by 10%. The company says it's a testament to the hard work of the CBH team, transporters, contractors and growers, and that the current carryover position is 2.8 million tonnes. 
The price of live cattle getting shipped to Indonesia has surged in recent weeks, with some feeder steers out of Darwin getting up to $5.50 a kilo. The industry is watching closely to see how much Indonesia is paying as the country deals with outbreaks of two major livestock diseases. Troy Setter from the Consolidated Pastoral Company says foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease outbreaks are both very concerning, but there are some promising signs. Look, they're, they're both highly contagious diseases that are spread multiple ways and, and move rapidly. Um, Indonesia's got about 65-ish million at-risk animals. About four and a half, five million animals have been vaccinated and a couple of million have had the disease. So we're starting to see some immunity build up, both natural and vaccinated immunity for foot and mouth, but the disease is still still prevalent. Um, they've done a really good job in Bali of, of getting it under control mm. and pleasantly, you know, we're starting to see a bit more focus on lumpy skin. Unfortunately, lumpy skin has now moved down into central Java and, uh, and that's, uh, that's a worry for all of us. And the new chair of Berries Australia says the organisation is focused on helping growers overcome the devastating impacts of flooding while rising to meet new demands for innovation and quality. Smartberry's chief executive, Anthony Pointer, has been elected to lead the joint venture established by Blueberry, Strawberry, Raspberry and Blackberry grower groups to provide a united voice for the billion-dollar industry. He says he wants to see the industry to continue to strive to be a premium fruit category in Australia and around the world. Berries are now our largest fruit category in Australia. So that's it's tremendous um, you know, economic force in the industry. That's been fast evolution, very fast you know, the, the industry's really come of age over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Incredible improvement in the quality of fruit, which has really created demand from consumers to consume more and more of each of the berry types. And a lot of that's come from better growing, more people growing, better varieties, which just taste better and better processes too. So there's been a lot of progress over the past, you know, decade or more. And I see that progress continuing. And that's Rural News today, Warwick. Thanks very much for that. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. Already getting some texts in to do with Matthew Goss. Somebody asking about the timber industry. We do mention that, albeit briefly. So stay tuned for that. Keep the text coming. 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Because he is the man doing tens of thousands of kilometres through regional Victoria, pitching to become the next Premier of the state. Leader of the Liberal Party, Matthew Guy, says regional Victoria is key to him winning. But does he have the policies that connects with regional Victorians? And in the world of agriculture and farming, does he have enough to say on the state of roads, transmission lines, energy, biosecurity, water and much more that you want to hear during this election. You're about to hear an interview with Mr Guy and we hope, don't worry, we hope to have the Premier Daniel Andrews for his pitch anytime on this program before Election Day. But while he was in Shepparton, I spoke to Matthew Guy for his pitch to rural and regional voters. This is what he had to say. Matthew Guy, welcome to the Country Hour. Thanks, Warwick. Thanks for having me on. What's your pitch to farmers and regional Victoria this election? Well, I think that not just farmers, but the whole state needs a change of direction, a fresh start. And more the point, we all need to have a government that respects us, no matter where we live in Victoria. And that's why we've got a healthcare plan that is as important to people in Katamatite as it is to people in Turak. Our pitch is one to the whole state. You know, I've been, like, I, I'm always in Country Vic. I love Country Vic. If I wasn't a politician, I'd probably live in Country Vic. My dad was a radio announcer at 3UL in Warrigal. It's where my parents met. So it's kind of in my blood. But that, that aside, you know, we want to make sure that Country Victorians get the, the services 
and the resources they deserve and to make sure that they're not second-class citizens as they're treated by this government. And let's talk through some of those issues then that Victorians are facing right now. I suppose a big one, particularly to do with the flooding emergency still facing a large part of the state, is uh, the state of regional roads at the moment already crumbling into disrepair before the floods and the rain, now in a, a dire state despite the, the repair job that's happened so far. What would you do if you were Premier to repair regional roads? We've got a $10 billion plan. So it's a billion dollars in road maintenance funding each and every year to be locked in for 10 years. And, and that is because under the current government, that has been, uh, well, it's been barely half that for the, the time they've been in office on an annual basis. And look, it used to be the southwest that had the worst roads. You go down to Glenelg and you'd think, dear God, these roads are terrible. Now it's the whole state. It's everywhere. And and, and the southwest, I think, has really got the worst, but then the rest of the state isn't much better off. I mean, I was up in Mildura with my family not long ago on the way back. Of course, it says, slow down, please, the road, you know, because of potholes in the road. So the government's attitude is to put a speed sign up to slow you down rather than fix the roads. Well, that's why I want to put a billion dollars a year, each and every year for 10 years, to fix the roads. And it's not just new roads, it's road maintenance. That's why we must do that. We must do that. You cannot have this circumstance where... Speed limits are lowered because maintenance just isn't done. That is not a first world country solution. $600 million is roughly what the government's spending at the moment. You're committing a billion dollars per that's year. Right. That's that's only $400 million a year more. It's not enough to fix the problem, though, is it? Well, there's a lot of capital works that needs to be done on top of that. And that's why we've committed uh, quite a lot of money on capital works upgrades on those roads as well. Then there's the maintenance. So it's twofold. It's the capital works upgrades first and then the maintenance beyond that second a lot of the the secondary roads it's around road maintenance funding the the bigger highway for instance problem is 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 capital funding and so our package on that will address that as well is that enough to fix the problem a billion dollars should be if it's paid see this government says there's 600 mil but it's dropped down into the three and four hundreds for that time as well then we had the road the country roads and bridges fund which was spent in the premier's electorate of mulgrave so, you know, you actually have to say what you're going to do and mean it. So when we say we're going to fix country roads, we actually mean that doesn't apply to Temple Stowe or to Mulgrave. It applies to places in country and regional Victoria. Let's talk the floods that a lot of Victoria is still suffering. And no doubt you've been out to see um, the situation with your own eyes as well. Yep. This election will probably not mean as much to a lot of people because they're still going to be battling yeah, water sure. on their, their, their properties. But... If you become Premier, is recovery and lifting areas of Victoria back to their feet going to be a priority It for you? absolutely must be. I mean, uh, Peter Walsh, who's the Deputy Coalition Leader and Leader of the Nats, he, you know, his electorate is along the Murray River, and it's, it's devastating. And, you know, I look at what's happened through Rochester. I've had a briefing recently from the Mayor of Shepparton about what's occurring through, or um, well, not just Shepparton and Marupna, but towns um, to the north on the Goulburn. And that is going to take a long time to not just the waters receding, but then the work to actually fix the problems. And then the debates around levy banks, which obviously is, is a next, is no doubt the next one. And that's what I wanted to raise with you, because there's a lot of anger in communities about the previous management of the levy, sure. government departments sure. and catchment management authorities, all of which are authorities of the state government, sure. don't want to claim ownership sure. of levies until the last moment when communities come in and, and end sure. up doing a hodgepodge trying to, to protect their communities. Could you design or oversee a better system as Premier? Look, I don't know the answer to that. Um, Peter Walsh and I... Have, we look at it? We're certainly keen to look at it and see where we can resolve the, the situation because, I mean, in Peter's own communities and his electorate, they're facing... You know, huge flood events. And from our point of view, it's not about who's to blame. It's about how to fix the problem so it doesn't keep happening. 
And people say, well, you know, it hasn't happened for a long time. Well, it will happen again. And once is enough. And surely we should fix the problem from here on. And in terms of flood management and the role of emergency services and how the government has dealt with that, has the government performed well there? Well, yeah, I don't want to play politics with that. I think our emergency services do do a very good job. And I think when situations like this, nothing's ever perfect, but they've certainly kicked into gear. And on top of that, the community has been exceptional in their support. And I think that shows the best in Australian society. Will it make it more difficult to balance the budget of the state, given the, the flooding hitting the, the state at a time where there could be a change of government? Look, it shouldn't in the sense that the, the monies we know that have to be expended for flood relief are one-off, expended, uh, one-off expenses, uh, or at least you know that they are manageable. They're not ongoing expenses. The issue Victoria has is our ongoing expenses and where the state government can't manage money, and we've certainly found that with this government, we've got more debt than New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania combined. Um, that comes down to the ongoing manage of the management of the budget, and that's a very different proposition. Matthew Guy, the leader of the Liberal Party in Victoria, is with you uh, on the campaign trail in the studio here in Shepparton ahead of the Victorian election. A couple of issues, Matthew Guy, have made that uh, have become major ones that have spoken about a lot on on the country hour in the lead up to this election. One big one, which I'm I'm no doubt you're aware of, is the issue of designing where to put transmission lines sure. in this state at the moment. Sure. I know a member of your party, Louise Stately, Staley, is uh, uh, campaigning to try and move the transmission route of the sure. of the lines for the Western Transmission Project, but there's sure. others to be uh, developed in Victoria at the same time. Can your government, a government under you, do better than the current situation? Well, the current situation is one where the state government has literally vacated the field and blamed everyone else. And that's no... That's not dealing with the problem. That's trying to send it off to someone else. So what will you do? That's And therein lies the problem. We've been very clear that we want to make sure that communities uh, know exactly what's going to occur and when and what some of those solutions might be. You know, it's not fair to spring these things on communities at the last minute. It's not fair to say, well, sorry, you've got no appeal rights or you've got no way of having a say in these matters. This is where it's going to be. And that's what Louise has said. Louise Staley's position seems to be not in my electorate. If you move it over there, it's going to be okay, though. Oh, no, it's not just that. Um, she's she's following some of the existing routes, for instance, and certainly for the location of the substations that go, goes north and they're around existing infrastructure. And that's sensible where you've got existing infrastructure. I think the real contention is going through areas which there is there is no power routes at the moment. There is nothing. And particularly over some of those potato farms, which could be hugely detrimental to them. Is one of the difficulties here, there's a privatised energy grid of companies that you have to negotiate with building this project. Could the government have a, a greater say if it was the owner of the infrastructure? Shouldn't matter, because at the end of the day, the government gives the planning permission. So uh, whether it's a, a government-owned entity or a private entity, it is still the Minister for Planning. It is still the government, the state government, who is the planning authority over those projects. So it shouldn't matter. Will you look at river on the issue of riverfront camping and yep. the opening up of those leases at the moment? Under a government that you lead, would you look at the opening up of those areas for riverfront camping? We are very concerned about some of the biosecurity risks that that, that may present. And we're very concerned about, again, some of the lack of consultation, a lack of options to Victorian farmers. I mean, farming is not just a, you know, an occasional uh, thing you do. It's, it's people's livelihoods. And that, to me, must come first. 
And so the rights of those who are making a living off the land or leasing those properties should come first because they are making a living off those those land assets and we should be making sure that they're you know that lease is being respected first for those who have who've engaged in it and i think we've just put forward sensible propositions that that's what should be the case when any of these issues being considered what's your position on the murray darling basin plan the new federal water minister tanya plibersek has put an undisclosed amount of money in the federal budget for water buybacks to return something the community didn't think was going to happen again what would your position oh be? look best speaking with peter walsh on the matters and the and the um the water Water minister on those matters, but uh, our key point on this has been that we have a cooperative relationship, that we don't fight, that we actually have engagement with the South Australian, the New South Wales and the federal government, and I think that's the best way to do that. And so you're happy to keep the Nationals in Victoria in control of the water portfolio? That's, that's what it is in opposition, that's what it will be in government. Vic Forest, do you think they're doing a, a good job in their role of looking after the forest and, and sustainable timber harvesting in this state? Well, we've said that a sustainable sustainable level of forestry is is where we want to be, and we've always had a point of view that forest industries in those communities should be supported on sustainable timber harvesting, uh, and um, and Vic Forest should be accountable in how they do that. And, and I think Vic Forest. Did the court cases recently concern you? Oh well, I don't really want to comment on court cases. What I, what I would say is that it's up to Vic Forest, like any statutory authority, to be transparent and sensible in how they operate. Matthew Guy is with you, the leader of the Liberal Party here in Victoria, former VFF employee as well. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's part of your credentials for agriculture, <laughs> is it, Matthew Guy? Well, uh, I was a city boy who went to work for the Farmers Federation and learned a lot about things like laser grading, which I had no idea what they were at the start. And But it was good. It was fascinating because not only did you get around the state, you know, you, you learned so much about at that stage what was happening in the dairy industry and what was happening in cropping to the northwest of Victoria. And and they were fascinating topics for someone like myself who, who you know, who'd never be exposed to anything like that. So then coming into politics and when I became a minister, and at that stage, I was the planning minister. When some of the smaller councils, and at that stage, I think it was West Wimmera and Hindmarsh, wanted to reform farm zones. And you understand when they're talking to you saying, this is not a lifestyle zone, it's a working zone, minister. And so, you know, you then start to design those zones around what you've learnt from that career, knowing that people back in Melbourne think a farm zone is, you know, it's lovely you've got three chooks and two cows and that's a farm. No, you're talking about farm with many, many hundred head of cattle, for instance, and then you've got more on sheep. Um, so it's a working zone and you have to have that premise in your mind and it gave me a lot of respect for those ag industries in Victoria who just really are the backbone of our economy. One of the big issues that have come up at a lot of local electorate forums uh, throughout this is um, not only housing availability in regional areas for yep. towns but also for things like farm workers yes. and we hear about that constantly. Is there a quick fix that you can foresee or something that a government can do to free up availability? Uh, quick fix, uh, not Urgent, not 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 overnight. That's correct. Um, but what we can do is make it easier, and that is by bringing back planning flying squads. And what they are is they go around and help council. So where councils say we've got six structure plans we need to get through, and in those structure plans might be, um, you know, 150 houses hypothetically, and the state government sits on it as this government has for seven years. Well, that doesn't help anyone because the fewer developers active in a market, then they benefit from a from a price which is you know they can set as opposed to five or six developers when they've got to compete. And we want to be able to provide the person trying to buy a house the, the most competition because then they're going to get a better price. And more the point, that only benefits the consumer and, and might get people, for instance, on farm workers in a home quicker. A little bit more broadly, looking at the, the electorate map at the moment and where you sit and... and I suppose to borrow an American term, your path to victory. Yep. How do you win this election? <laughs> How 
People ask me that, and then every day there's a new poll that puts us closer and closer, and the last one has us level pegging. So does that mean you work? Um, it's working? Well, what's working is just being sensible and not over-committing, and not everything the Premier does, it has to be the big, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest. You know, the guy has a complex where everything has to be the biggest, and of course none of it's ever done. Is it through the suburbs or through regional areas? It's, or how? Look, I, I don't want to come to government without country and regional seats. I think country and regions need a very strong voice in government. I intend that to be, uh, in, in my government, to be the same, not just with the nationals, but also country liberals. I mean, you've got people like Louise Staley, Wayne Farnham in Narrakan, Bill Tilley in Benambra, Roma Britnell, South West Coast. We, we need them back too. That brings us to the next story. Independence <laughs> with the story of the last federal election. Bill yep. Tilley, for one, is under a lot of pressure from an independent yep. there, uh, as is other areas where we're sitting at the moment. Three-quarter contest with a sitting independent and obviously yep. Mildura too. Will independence be the story of this election? Look, it's, people ask me this particularly about Bill. Bill faced independence the last two elections. This, this is not new. Um, you know, we've, we put our best foot forward. We're not You'd wor- have to win Shepparton and Mildura too to win, wouldn't you? We'd think so. We'd like to. Um, but again, you know, this is... How I, I don't want to disrespect or, or attack other candidates, uh, independent candidates run their elections, and that's fine for them, but we run ours and we're putting forward sensible po- paths for those cities and those electorates to be part of a government. Just before we finish, Matthew Guy, to avoid me becoming an electoral <laughs> Nostradamus. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> if you don't win, is this it for you? Might come and live in Shepherd, and I like it up here. <laughs> you, you well, many people have, have written you off before, <laughs> but, but, do you, but do you foresee a career if you can't win this election? I'll wait and see when I get to the 27th of November, but I'm pretty confident that I'll be the Premier of Victoria because we're on path, uh, a very good path, and we're you know, doing what we need to do and talking to the people of Victoria and I must say I enjoy campaigning because you get out and see so many people and that's what politics is about well uh, good luck with the rest of the campaign trail and I thought you were going to offer me a gig on ABC radio oh well I don't have the power to do that but I've got the uh, I've got the recommendations for future holidays and maybe uh, I'll take those instead thanks Thanks for your time appreciate it Matthew God doesn't want to talk about the future does he uh, if he doesn't win but that's his pitch to become the next Premier of Victoria, certainly on rural and regional issues. You can send a text, give us your review of that, 0467 842 722. 0467 842 uh, Before we head to news headlines, though, let's talk irrigation water. Irrigators and environmental water holders who kept water from one season to the next are set to lose a lot of that water as it spills from storages. Authorities have announced today that water will be lost and the numbers uh, will be confirmed later next week comes the storage managers say they're going to increase what's being released of our storages ahead of forecast rain this Sunday. Resource manager with Gulba Murray Water Mark Bailey explains what's happening and what it means to irrigation water users. It is uh, it is something that we do have to put the announcement out. Obviously there has been very large volumes released from Lake Hilda and Lake Hume over the past month. Uh, while we recognise that um, it has caused a lot of grief for a lot of people just in terms of the water accounting that is occurring in the background that is still continuing Uh, so we do have to put the announcement out and, and let people know that there will be further water deducted from spillable water accounts. So that means effectively irrigators held water from from last season to this one. Irrigators and environmental water accounts, I should say, that held water from one season to the next will effectively lose some of that water that they've that they've saved in storages because it is effectively spilled. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, uh, anybody who has uh, carried over water now uh, will be seeing uh, well. A lot of people who had carried over water against their low reliability water shares will be seeing some of that water lost. Um, the full amount will be uh, explained on 
the uh, 15th of this month when the next seasonal determination for those systems is released. However, we can say up front that there will be uh, water being deducted from those accounts now. Yeah, so so you don't have the, the official figures yet, but we're talking to irrigators on the Murray and Goulburn systems here. They're expected to lose some of that water? That's correct, yes. Um, with the, the volumes that have been coming through from um, Yield and, and from Hume, there will be volumes released. Well, I can't give a, a quantitative volume right now uh, because uh, we still have some accounts spilling up and we'll still have the spills, I should say, occurring up until the 15th. Is it expected to be a substantial amount? I feel like that's a rather odd question given how much water has been spilling. But in terms of irrigators' accounts, will it be substantial? Uh, it will be a substantial volume, yes, Warwick. Just, uh, just looking at the volumes that were carried over this year from last year were quite high. Uh, that combined with the uh, the large spills that have occurred, yes, it will be a, a large volume. And this is all part of water accounting, but what does it mean then, I suppose, for future allocations, which are already quite high in this season? Does it make effectively more airspace for future allocations now? Uh, yes, it does. So the, the spill accounts are designed for anybody to uh, effectively borrow somebody else's airspace within the dam. Um, so... When new water flows into the into the dams, um, that airspace is uh, becomes available for the people who still had it. So the people who are borrowing it have to relinquish some of that airspace. Sounds a very strange argument, I understand, but that's effectively what's happening. Uh, so it will result in new resource available for people, and it will add to the uh, the low reliability water share announcements that we have for the uh, Goulburn and, and uh, Murray systems. We're still seeing substantial spills occurring. Um, there was an announcement from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority this morning about increased uh, pre-releases from Lake Hume. Um, this hasn't seen anything from Gold Murray Water at this stage about Lake Eildon. Um, but uh, with rain forecast for the next few days, um, there is potential for further increases, which will further add to the, the deductions from spillable water counts. And in terms of irrigation allocations, which are expected to be updated next week, uh, I'd imagine, well, a lot of, lot of that's already been taken to 100% for, for a lot of irrigators, but is there, is there something to watch closely there? I think the uh, the main information we'll see is uh, what the changes are in the, the Goulburn and the Murray systems. haven't actually sat down to do any of the mathematics for that at the moment, um, but the, my team will be working on that over the next few days. Well, we do expect to see rises. I just can't give a quantification about what they are at the moment. That is Mark Bailey, who's the resource manager with Goulburn Murray Water, speaking about the loss of irrigation water uh, for both irrigators and the environmental water holder out of storages as uh, the risk of spill, well, as a spill is declared from those storages. The water accounting, but it means a lot to those involved. Uh, you're listening to the Country Hour. We're going to, speaking of rivers and water, we'll head to Robinvale and Caligonan on the program shortly. Before we get there, though, let's head to regional news headlines with Rio Davis. Good afternoon, Rio. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news, Vic Forrest says it's preparing for a permanent court injunction which will affect timber harvesting operations in East Gippsland and the Central Highlands. Last week, Supreme Court Court Justice Melinda Richards determined Vic Forrest's methods for protecting gliders were inadequate, likely to be ineffective and inconsistent with relevant scientific research. The state-owned business says it's taking necessary steps to ensure it's compliant with the final orders, expected to be handed down tomorrow. Logging contractors contacted by the ABC have already begun removing their equipment from the bush. 
Hay fever and asthma sufferers are being warned to take precautions today as heavy storms and high pollen counts have created conditions for thunderstorm asthma. Authorities are forecasting a higher risk of thunderstorm asthma in the Wimmera and a moderate risk in the western region, the Mallee and central regions. Authorities say if someone is having an asthma attack and not responding to medication, you should call triple zero for help. The state government has promised to give student nurses and midwives a $5,000 sign-on bonus if they enter the public workforce if Labor wins the election. Victorian Labor's Jacinta Allen has also pledged to introduce nurse-to-patient ratios on key acute wards, as well as trialling neonatal support nurses on maternity wards. The policies will cost taxpayers $150 million over four years. And the Victorian Coalition has promised to prioritise the mental health care of regional Victorians ahead of, the, ahead of Metropolitan Melbourne if they're elected in November. Under the plan, each local government area would be allocated $1 million for community mental health organisations. Meanwhile, Metropolitan Melbourne's LGAs would receive half a million dollars each. Shadow Minister for Mental Health Emma Keeley says mental health care for regional and remote Victorians costs more. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks very much for that. Rio Davis there with regional news headlines. A couple of your texts on our interview with Matthew Guy, the leader of the opposition in Victoria on his pitch this election. Uh, We've got Cyril saying Matthew Guy will win the next election uh, for Dan Andrews. Cyril, see what you did there. Thank you very much for that. But Frank and Ballarat says Matthew Guy is the right man to lead Victoria as Premier. Good policies and common sense. That's what we need. But Glenn says it doesn't matter what he says or what he promises. There's no trust in someone without integrity. The Libs think he's appropriate to lead them. Shows what they're about. I'll vote independents and minority parties before him, says Glenn. Uh, on the text line, one that simply says Henry Balti. Where are you? Well, he died over 30 years ago, Henry Balti, but I know what you're trying to say. Thank you very much. You can get the text coming, 0467 842 We are going to talk flooding on the program shortly, but let's talk, talk about what weather is still to come as uh, some wild weather has hit areas of Victoria today. Hannah Marsh is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. You can join us now. Hi, Hannah. Good afternoon, Warwick. What can you tell us about the weather that's hit Victoria today so far? Because some, some wild reports from different areas, particularly around Mildura, have come in earlier today. Yeah, particularly about the west of the state. But just having a look generally, we saw minimums around the 11 to 20 degree mark overnight and already uh, pretty warm uh, with 28.7 degrees at Orbos. It's been to 27.6 at Eastsale, 26.4 in Melbourne. It's already been up to 26 degrees at Shepparton, 24 point, uh, sorry, 23.8 at Mildura and around the 20 degree mark for Bendigo, Ballarat and Warrnambool. But as you mentioned, we've got a band of cloud really over western and central parts of the state. We've seen some embedded thunderstorms in that uh, during the morning period and we're just starting to see some convection at the back of that line as well. So does that Um, mean hail? We've heard a couple of reports of hail, unconfirmed sort of as yet, but has there been hail around? Yeah, so with those storms uh, in the clearer air, we are expecting uh, the potential for some damaging winds, large hailstones and heavy rainfall. And we do have a severe thunderstorm warning, which kind of straddles the uh, Mallee and Wimmera at the moment, but uh, there will be further updates to that as the afternoon progresses. So keep an eye on our website at www.bomb.gov.au 
for uh, future warnings. But we are expecting the thunderstorms to gradually move east, reaching central districts later tonight. And uh, those severe thunderstorms will be confined to the west uh, during today but then as we move into tomorrow we've got the thunderstorms and showers gradually moving up further east to central and eastern districts so a clearing trend in the west and uh, we're looking at uh, less still a chance of seeing severe thunderstorms with the focus on heavy rainfall and also on hail in the north um, but less of a focus on wind for tomorrow uh, having a look at some of the temperatures that we're expecting across the state tomorrow, uh, we're looking at 20 degrees in Melbourne with those showers easing, 29 and sunny for Mildura, getting up to 24 at Bendigo, 26 for Echuca, 24 at Albury Wodonga, uh, 19 for Hanum, uh, sorry for Hamilton, and 21 degrees for Sale tomorrow. Then on Saturday, we get another system uh, which will start to develop over South Australia, just poking into the west of the state. Uh, on Saturday, we've also got uh, the previous system in the east. So a bit of a uh, mixed day with showers and thunderstorms in the far east and then also in the northwest of the state. The ones in the west will gradually extend uh, east during the day. Then by Sunday, we're looking at the wettest day in the outlook period with really scattered showers and isolated thunderstorms throughout the, the state. Uh, and then this contracts to the east on Monday. And generally, uh, we're looking at just showers on and south of the divide on Tuesday. But associated with the system coming through on Monday, we do have some cold air behind it. So we're looking at much cooler temperatures by Monday. Even the chance of seeing some uh, small hail on Tuesday and looking at snow level dropping as well. Can you give areas for that small hail? Like fruit growing areas in particular and even grain growing areas will be concerned by that. Yeah, so we're looking at um, parts of the southwest at this stage. There is a little bit of model inconsistency as to how far that does push north, uh, but we will keep an eye on it as we get a bit closer. So that was Tuesday uh, that we're looking at there. But, yeah, having a look at some of the temperatures for uh, Saturday or for the weekend, we're looking around the uh, 26 to 29 degree mark. Um, then by... Monday, we're dropping back down to around the 14 to 20 degree mark. So much cooler uh, to start off next week. Yeah, certainly so. And when, when is the bulk of the rain, particularly in that Sunday event that everyone's watching closely, when's that likely to arrive? Yeah, so uh, for western parts, we'd be looking overnight Saturday into Sunday. Central parts, it'll be um, really during the morning and then eastern parts later morning. Um, but in terms of the thunderstorms, again, uh, earlier in the west, but for central and eastern parts, more likely during the afternoon. Still that suite of mainly down to minor flood warnings uh, across the state at the moment, apart from the, the areas along the Murray. But any other warnings we need to be aware of before we let you go? No, that severe weather warning, uh, sorry, severe thunderstorm warning uh, that I mentioned earlier. And uh, it is likely that we'll be issuing a flood watch uh, later on today, which will cover the rainfall they're expecting uh, over the weekend. Thanks very much for that, Hannah. Really appreciate the update.
Thank you. Hannah Marsh there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast there. Uh, if you're in one of those areas or if you've had hail already, as I said, so we've got a couple of unconfirmed reports, particularly in the, the western districts and then up to the northwest. Would love to know if you could be our eyes to let us know uh, if there has been some some hail. Obviously, already had a hailstorm through the Goulburn Valley areas, which has affected greatly the, the fruit-growing regions where I am in, in the Goulburn Valley, but would love to know so we can report on it if there's been some in your part of the world, particularly in the western areas of the state. You can always call us. You can send us a text to 0467 842 722. Even email us, country at abc.net.au to send us an email. It is 19 to 1. Let's continue our discussion of the floods and the preparations for communities. Yes, floodwaters are still moving towards communities in Victoria. Owners of excavators and other earth-moving equipment are in high demand at the moment as floodwater continues to make its way down swollen rivers. Steve Galace and his staff are putting in long hours in Robinvale trying to protect houses and permanent plantings like vines and avocado trees. He lives on the Murray River and says he's watched the water rise constantly each day. We probably start at you know, around about the six in the morning, go through till five, six at night, and then sometimes we have a night shift that run through after that. Um, at the minute, we've probably got, including the subbies, we've probably got 30 pod people building levee banks and carting dirt. Given how much demand there is for your earth moving and excavation services, mm-hmm. how are you deciding what jobs to prioritise? Generally I go and have a look at the job first and then see how close the water is to when they need help. Um, we've obviously got people that have got 100 millimetres and you know, yesterday I went to a, a farmer there and he had a levee bank and the water was actually seeping over the top. So we moved the machine in straight away, a 50 tonne excavator in straight away and I think it was a couple of kilometres of um, levee bank we had to top up. Got him out of trouble and the other ones that had five, 600, well we just I made a phone call to them and just said listen I've... I'll be a couple of days, I've got to go help this guy first and then I'll come back to you and you know, people have been pretty understanding with that and it's really good. You're starting to get inquiries from further downstream though. How long do you think you're going to be building flood levees for? Oh, I don't know, we just, we'll help wherever we can. You know, we've, we've had people down there, earth moving companies down there ring us and ask for our side tippers and excavators and stuff like that and we're still ringing for people to help us too so we, we don't know how long this is going to go on and where we go from here we've got a lot of other work to get to that we've sort of postponed for a little bit to do this sort of stuff. I was on the Calder Highway yesterday and three excavators on trucks went past me. I wasn't even on the highway that long. Is it a sign that it's a case of all hands on deck in your industry just to try and protect farming land or houses? All my boys are putting in. They've been really good, so, you know, we look after them as well. But um, it's definitely wherever we can get machines from at the minute. We've been ringing people, and I think all the other earth movers are in the same game at the minute. We all help each other out, and I'll ring them, and they'll ring me for machinery and dirt and stuff like that. So, yeah, we all sort of pitch in and do our thing. You're the cleanest looking earth mover I've come across, but you've told me that later today it might not be the same case. Yeah, generally trying to organise 30 people with trucks and excavators and machineries and phone calls and looking at going to look at the jobs to prioritise them. I sort of stay clean in the first part of the morning when I organise everybody and then I generally end up in a machine myself trying to help out and you know take calls and do stuff from inside machines. But 
you know, you, you're looking at, at, at during the day I'd probably spend five hours in a machine or six hours and the rest of the time of the day I'm running around looking at jobs and sometimes the other night, well, 10 o'clock at night still at people's properties looking at what we can do and when we can get there. There's a lot of community sandbagging happening further upstream. How quickly can you get the same amount of work done as what a sandbagging operation would take? It depends on the volume of what you have to do too, you know what I mean? Like, you've, you're at my place now and you've seen I've built a three-metre wall. That's that's probably 500 metres around, three-odd metres high, and we've done that in four days or something like that with sort of 16 trucks backwards and forwards. But, you know, we've got a... I've sent a loader down to Weeman today. They've got to make 22,000 sandbags there in a hurry too. So we've got a loader there and a heap of sand feeding the machine to build sandbags down there as well. How much have you seen the river rise around your place? I've got a mark in the river and we put um, 50 millimetre intervals on it and that's coming up 65 to sort of 85 millimetres every day. That's Steve Galace who operates Mallee Earth Moving and Excavators and they are the most popular people in the state at the moment. Anybody who has an excavator or has one for sale... Uh, every time we talk about it uh, or talk about a flooding in a community, they are almost certainly the first people that are mentioned. Uh, we'll continue following the water. Let's continue downstream now to the area of Calignan, where farmers and residents are urging authorities to keep a main road accessible as water continues to rise. According to current predictions, uh, Kalkine Way will be covered in water unless a levee is built along the road, similar to what happened there in 1975. But Calignan citrus grower Ben Mansell told Kelly Hollingworth it's needed for transporting not only produce but emergency services and delivery of agricultural supplies. Uh, I look on live river data every day and adding adding up what's at the Warkle Junction, Swan Hill and Murrumbidgee, so coming out of Bell Ronald, and that gives you a a rough picture of, of what flow and then look at Euston because Euston's the next one up. Caligna at the moment's pretty hard to look at because a lot of it's going around Caligna and out through the creeks and that around the New South Wales side so what it says at Caligna is not the real of how much flow is really going down through the river. We're sitting at your tea room on the farm. You've got a river view at the moment. When was the last time it looked like that? 2016, it was probably down, uh, I reckon it's about a foot above 2016 level, pretty close to that above 2016 level here. Um, So yeah, 2016, 93 was a good one, but I don't remember that too well, but definitely 2016 it it was up this high. How much higher are you thinking it might get? Well, they're telling us, uh, (laughs) they're telling us 80 to 90 centimetres and that's, yeah, we'll, we'll be okay here where we are now, but... That's, that's a lot more water to come down through here. You've got primarily citrus on this property. Is any of it likely to be flood affected? Uh, five acres maximum. I think it'd go under, but that's about it. And there's nothing we can do about that. There's, it's right on the edge of the creek, so it, it'll definitely be... It'll probably be in there in the next three days, I think. You're pretty much at the end of Colcombe Way, and it's one of the key ways to get into Mildura. Are emergency services factoring this into any of their planning? Uh, uh, th- oh, I hope so. Colcombe Way, it has to stay open. There's no two ways about it. Uh, that That's our main road for everyone out here and if that was to get cut off, there's, there's a lot of people out here that will be affected by that. Um, 
but as I get told, because I wasn't around, in 1974-75 there was a levy bank put up, so if it was put up then I think it's, <laughs> it's pretty easy nowadays with the stuff we've got that it should be able to be put up again. You look at Colcon Way, I've driven down it to get to you, it's already very close to the road, so it's going to be very difficult to do that if something doesn't happen soon. Oh, it, it's, got to ha- it's got to be starting to happen now, I think. Um, it's it raised last night, I don't know, but the night before it raised 100 mil overnight, and as you said, we've got we went and did some levels yesterday, and we had, as of yesterday afternoon, we had about 650 mils before it was coming up and over the road so if it does that well we've got a week haven't we before the water's coming over the road. The council's already started removing some of its infrastructure that's out this way what kind of impact is that having on locals your vice president of the bowls club what's been removed and how is that affecting the community? I've been told that the pump has been removed, that waters all the footy oval, bowls, all the recreation reserve, but it also fills up all the tanks for the houses along beside the pub as well as the pub. So it's been removed and they'll have to truck water in, which I was speaking to our greenskeeper and he said, who does all the watering, and he said the pump would not go under even if it was... 56 or above so I don't understand why it's been removed that's that's my uh, that probably would be my question but pretty sure councils just decided that uh, they don't want to take the risk of losing any of their infrastructure I suppose Um, it's going to have a big impact on everybody that doesn't like if they don't have water they've got to truck it in that's just another another thing that they've got to think about now. In terms of the pumps that are used to irrigate your farm and you know, your neighbours, everyone else along this section in Nangelok and Calignan, how much monitoring are they needing to do to make sure their pumps aren't inundated? We're we're pretty lucky with ours because we've got floating pontoons, but others, I know there's been a lot of questions asked earlier on in the piece about how high we think, personally, think the river could get and what levels would they see at their pumps. So they've gone away and made sure, I think, that they'll actually be all right if we do get a very big river so there's been a lot of alterations to pumps along the river along here to make sure that they won't be affected by the flood hopefully. How important is it to have water available for your crops for as long as possible? Oh, I mean if we get a week of 40s and we can't irrigate that's it where uh, we'll lose our crop. I've only just started my pumps this week because we've been getting very consistent rainfall but this week I've had to, even though there's a forecast of rain on the weekend, I had to start watering this week. Even with floodwaters approaching, irrigators need to irrigate. That's Calignan citrus, citrus grower Ben Mansell speaking with Kelly Hollingworth about how things are looking there and preparations as well. Away from flooding, let's talk getting prices for an important commodity right now. You've got the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator for cattle market prices. There's a bunch of other ones in there as well for, for trade lambs as well. It's cattle market price indicators, the EMI in wool. You know how to find oil prices for petrol or uh, other price indicators indicators in that world as well. Have you ever tried to look up fertiliser prices? We all know it's expensive, but outside of individually calling distributors, there's no easily accessible market information on fertiliser prices in Australia. And as Luke Radford reports, that's led to the creation of a national census to try and shed some light on the situation. But it's not easy. 
The cost of fertiliser has been dominating discussion across the Australian agricultural community for almost 18 months now. Farmers know the price is going up and roughly know why, but outside of that are countless unanswered questions. Is it different across Australia? Are there vast differences between the suppliers? In short, is the market transparent enough? No, it's not. If you think about some of the other commodity markets ranging from livestock to grains, etc., there's certainly much more current, up-to-date information. Mick Keogh is the Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Well, we certainly, in looking at markets, recognise transparency as a very important element to, if you like, rebalance unbalanced market power. So where some participants in a market have quite a deal of market power and then a lot of participants don't, getting that information is key to making things fairer in those markets. So if you look at the work we've done in relation to the beef cattle markets, in relation to the dairy market, in relation to the horticulture market, dairy in particular and beef cattle in particular, we had a very strong focus on market transparency and making sure there is good readily available information to all participants on both sides of any negotiations in those markets. And that certainly historically and uh, right around the world, that's a real focus of making markets work better is making sure that there's really strong flow of information on a timely basis to all participants in those markets. Market analyst Andrew Whitelaw has had the same issue. He says it's difficult to provide feedback on fertiliser prices because the information just isn't readily available. Our company, we, we work as data analysts and so we analyse markets, uh, we analyse sheep markets, wool markets... Uh, cattle, goat, pigs, chickens, grains. And how we can do that is by having access to data. And by analysing those markets, we can put answers out there into the market and help, I guess, farmers, but also buyers make more informed decisions. But you need data to do that. You know, you can't... You, you, Otherwise, you're just making a guess. From this lack of information was born a novel idea. If the sellers won't provide the price, get it from the people who are actually buying it instead. And thus was born the fertiliser census. What we looked at was more of a a community-based solution. We've asked fertiliser companies in the past for pricing, but it's not forthcoming. And so we said, well, all those farmers out there who are getting quotes for urea or DAP or MAP, well, we've got a very simple form. You just fill it in. You say, well, on the 12th of November, I was quoted $1,250 a tonne at Geelong for urea. Boom, it goes in there. But then the more people we get filling in it, we can do more analysis and we can provide insights into, well, how does our price in Victoria compare to New South Wales or WA? And probably more importantly, how does it compare to the rest of the world? Same as we would do with the grain market, we would look at wheat and say, well, are we expensive or cheap versus the rest of the world? We want to be able to do the same with with other uh, agricultural costs that that farmers have. And it's all, we're doing this as a sort of, I guess, an interest piece. And all the information that we provide from it or make from it will be publicly available. If a lot of this discussion feels familiar, it's because it is. In fact, the ACCC looked at this very issue way back in 2008. The ACCC did or was instructed to conduct a, a market inquiry into fertiliser prices in 2008 with, with very similar background uh, to the current situation. 
and it's certainly the the structure of the market then and now is very similar. That means some key information is in the hands of a very small number of players and in markets often information is king so they don't necessarily make that uh, easily available to participants in the market. That's basically the way the, the market operates. Whether or not the ACCC has another look at the fertiliser industry is a question for the federal government. But in the meantime, the fertiliser census has uncovered a few interesting insights. Look, we found, surprisingly, a lot of consistency. There's not a huge difference between the top and the bottom of the market in a, in a particular state. Uh, there is some variance between states. Uh, I think Western Australia was the, the most expensive, but generally quite variable and not a huge difference between fertilizer companies when it comes to price. But the key thing about it is that the more data that goes into it, the better. So the more people that, uh, that fill it in and the more people that provide that data over a longer period of time, the more uh, consistent sort of analysis we can provide. That's market analyst Andrew Whitelaw from episode three, finishing that report from Luke Radford, looking at the inability to get accurate information on fertiliser markets. Now, yesterday on the show, we heard about Agents drawing for a massive 107,000 of sheep and lambs for the Wagga sale, which is on today. Now, often with these things, the idea of how many could be there and how many go for sale can be two separate things. Let's find out what happened. Graeme Richard has the Wagga lamb market report for you. Good afternoon, Graeme. Good afternoon. There was a huge jump in numbers with 54,000 penned. There were 42,000 new season lambs. The quality was mixed in the large offering and included plenty of store lambs and some dry trade weights, which went back to the paddock. Good trades were limited and there was a good run of heavy and extra heavy lambs. Not all the usual trade buyers operated and the quality was back and came off a very strong market. Prices were back 30 to 50 across a large spread with the extra heavy lambs 20 cheaper. New season restocking lambs sold from 76 to 143, trades to 24 kilos, 130 to 200, 24 to 26 kilos, 171 to 212, 26 to 30, 186 to 236, with extra heavies reaching 262. The old trades, 106 to 189, heavyweights, 185 to 200, with extra heavies reaching 250. The best of the heavy merinos, 185, and there's still 19,000 sheep to be sold. And this has been Graham Richard at Wagga. So 54,000 lambs, 19,000 sheep, rough uh, head count there. We're looking in the 70,000 number. Does that sound right? I wanted more information out of that, but we'll keep on that. Bansdale Cattle now with Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. G'day. Warwick numbers decreased to 190. That's 70 fewer with most of the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market. Quality was very limited with cows and bulls making up almost all of the sales. Young and grown lots were too few to quote. The cows were mostly heavy beef cows easing 15 cents with processors loading cows for an estimated 5.23 to 7.72 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 8 cents. Store heifers reached a top of 4.30. Heavy grown heifers with good finish reached 4.36. Heavy steers sold up to 4.44. Most light and medium weight cows 2.20 to 3.54. Heavy weights 3.29 to 4.10. Heavy bulls 3.20 to 3.80. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. 
That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Thanks for all of your texts and feedback, particularly on the Matthew Guy interview. We'll post that separately so you can listen back if you'd like, and we will make approaches to the Premier Daniel Andrews to get his pitch for regional voters as well before election time. Plus, we're ready to talk about any issue you want. If you want us to examine policy and exactly what's being promised, send us an email, countryhour at abc.net.au. That's countryhour, or one word, at abc.net.au. We'll catch you again tomorrow. It's one o'clock.